Hey there. I'm really glad that you've come to check out the KZMC Weekly Teaching. My name is Ryan Yancey and I'm the lead pastor. KZMC gathers together for worship every Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. in person. You can also join us by our live stream available on YouTube. If you're from the area and you're not already connected to a church, we'd love to have you come join us. You can find the full details at kzmc.ca. It's my hope and it's my prayer that God will speak to you through this teaching. May you have a marvelous day. This morning we're continuing on with our our series through the book of of Exodus. And uh, we're going to be looking at the the golden calf, considering the idea of idolatry. So if, if you want, you can kind of flip to Exodus 32. I'm going to be referring to that at points along the way. I'm not going to do a full set of scripture reading at the start. But uh, yeah, the golden calf, thinking about idolatry. What does idolatry have to do with us? Is that just some like old school word that, uh, yeah, I don't know, like that's kind of something we talked about back in the day. Does that have anything to do with us now? And you can probably assume I'm going to suggest that idolatry is a very real thing for us today. A very real thing in my heart and uh, in your heart as well. Francine was a lady who loved novels, romance novels in particular. And she reflects on her love for romance novels, and she said, we tend to frame addiction as substance abuse. But most anything that consumes our attention and energy and serves as an escape can be an addiction. Mine was steamy historical romances. Though not as explicit as what's on the market today, the romances of the 70s and the 80s left me on a high. Who doesn't want to experience falling in love over and over again? At the same time that Francine was consumed by these romance novels, her life wasn't easy. Her marriage was crumbling. She had a miscarriage. And she said that she dealt with the grief from that miscarriage by reading. And eventually, she began to write fantasy fiction as well. She continues to reflect on that experience, saying, reading and writing romance became a way to survive the inner turmoil that I felt but didn't understand. Reading and writing romances kept me from analyzing why and dealing with the problems within. Something was missing, and I didn't know where to start looking for whatever was lost. This addiction consumed her life until one day her husband looked at her and very directly said, if you had a choice between me and the children and your writing, you would choose writing. And she was in shock. And she said, you know what? He's not wrong. Francine was living a life of idolatry, and whether, whether the idea of consuming romance literature connects with you or not, uh, it doesn't connect with me. I don't think I've ever read a romance, a romance novel. Um, but we all have our areas of life that consume our attention, our priorities, our focus. Francine was living in idolatry. You and I struggle with idolatry in our own unique ways. Idolatry is maybe an old school word that we don't use all that often anymore. But it's a word that's very applicable to our experiences. It's the idea of misplaced allegiance. A life where we can take what is created 
and devote our time and attention to it rather than the creator. Seeking that out above all else, expecting that hobby, that passion, whatever it might be, to meet the craving in our heart. And we don't even know that explicitly, but that's what's going on. Romance novels had become the god to which Francine was a servant. And this is classic idolatry. So our text today does deal with the topic of idolatry. What is it? Are we an idolatrous people? Today's text is about the idolatry of Israel. They make a major screw-up by creating a big golden statue of a calf. They, they take all of their, their jewelry and they cast it in a pile and they burn it up and then they refashion it in the shape of a golden calf. And then they worship and they dance around it and it's labeled as idolatry. And we study this text and we try to figure it out and, and it can be really challenging sometimes. I found this a challenging text to kind of work through. Like how does this story from 2,000 years ago connect with our lives? Like I've, I've never done anything like that before. I've never been tempted to bow down and dance around a statue. I've never been tempted to create a statue that reflects God. But here we are in the book of Exodus, and even though it can be a challenge at times, I very much believe that God has things he wants to say to us through these texts. We've been looking at the story of Israel, their journey to freedom. This journey to freedom is the the title for our series, and we're using the story of Israel and their journey to freedom as a map for our own freedom. God created us to be free, and we're, we're enslaved to all kinds of things, and God is inviting us to step into freedom. So Israel was delivered out of slavery in Egypt. It was a horrible experience. God, in quite a miraculous way, delivers them from the Egyptians across the Red Sea, and they're free, or so we think. But as the story progresses, we discover they're not that free at all. And Danielle Strickland puts it in perspective when she says it took God one year to get Israel out of Egypt. But then it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. You've heard me say this quote before. One year to get Israel out of Egypt, but 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. As they continued in their new life, the the values, the misplaced priorities, the idolatry, the sin... The, the rejection of God, th- these were still rooted in the hearts of the people. And so he takes them on this journey through the desert to root it out. And so God also is wanting to take us on a journey. You know, we've been delivered from sin the same way that the Egyptians were delivered from Israel. And yet we're not free because we still have these troubling things in our hearts. First, it was grumbling and complaining for the Israelites. You'd think they'd be like super happy and pumped and, and ready to go follow God wherever God would have them go, but they grumble and they complain. We looked at that a couple weeks ago, and now they have given themselves to idolatry by making that statue. So we're going to look at Exodus 32, verses 1 to 6. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them. He said, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and he made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. To us, this seems absolutely insane. This does not make any sense to me. Why would they do this? Why would God had just given them the Ten Commandments and said, don't make a graven image. Don't make a physical representation of who I am to bow down to. And then they were, so they do this and they refer to it as a number of gods when it was Yahweh, the one true God who delivered them. Like, it's, it's just, it's mind-blowing that they would do this 180 immediately after God told them. At least it's mind-blowing to us. And that's the thing about idolatry. It's sneaky. The thing is, to the Israelites, this seemed pretty normal. This golden calf, they had seen it in the religious systems of the people around them. It seemed ordinary. It seemed common. That's just what you did. You created an image to represent God, to bow down and worship. It wasn't a big deal. They were caught up in the spirit of the age that surrounded them. And then we, so we look at that, we're like, how could they do that? That's crazy idolatry. And then we look at our own lives, like, well, maybe we're idolatrous, but we're not really sure. And that's the thing. Idolatry is sneaky. Oftentimes, we don't even notice it. It's really easy to see in other people, particularly people who are very different from ourselves. But it's hard to recognize in ourselves because it looks like everyone else. Our own idolatry will mirror the culture around us. It will mirror the pagan systems. It will mirror the lives of those who don't care who God is or what God has said. Little ways that we don't even notice how we devoted our passions, our allegiance, our allegiance, our worship in ways apart from God. That's why it's always easier to see the idolatry in other people. That's what kind of stinks about it. It's hard to identify in ourselves. We might look at Christians from other nations and we would look at them and we'd say, well, how would they do this? Why would they express their faith in this way? Or, or isn't this idolatry? And it's easy to see in other people. And actually, I've seen it and I've heard it where Christians from other nations look at us in North America and they say, how can they, as they follow Jesus, be so given to wealth? How can they be given so given to personal possessions? How can they be so given to building up these big fancy institutions and having control, and they look at it, and they say, isn't that idolatry? And we're just like, I don't know, like this seems normal to us. When it's your idolatry, it actually seems pretty normal. Idolatry is sneaky. And so we ask the question, why do we give ourselves to idolatry? Why did the Israelites do this? Usually it's trying to meet some need, some craving that we have in our hearts. Idolatry is always aiming to meet a legitimate void within us. The Israelites, why did they create this golden calf? It's very clear, actually, in 32.1, it says, come, they gather on air and they say, come, make us gods with us who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Oh, verse 1, sorry, I skipped over that. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain. That's why they made it. Their leader, the one who showed them the way to God, he kind of mediated God's presence for them. He went up on the mountain. For all they knew, he could have died up there. They knew it was dangerous to be in the presence of God. He's up there for a while. They're like, what, what's going on? They start to fear. They start to worry. They don't know what's going to happen next. It's because of this legitimate need for safety, for security, 
for an idea about the future, that they turn to idolatry and they say, well, this will represent God, rather than trusting and leaning into who God really is. Same for uh, this Lady Francine that I mentioned. There was this need within her, this, this, this aching because of her miscarriage, because of the challenges of her own marriage as it was breaking down. That's, that's legit. Like there's hurt and there's pain there. But going to other places to meet that legitimate need rather than leaning in to God. This is how it works. So as we think of our own idolatry, do you have a sense for what that might be for you? Do you have a sense for what the legitimate need is that you are, are meeting? Um, I, don't, I don't know if I'm sounding like a broken record, but I've confessed to you, you know, for myself, my, the idolatry that I'm prone to is the need to be respected, the need to be in control. And God's been exposing that over time. And, and that comes out of a legitimate desire to be valued and loved, but instead of worshiping God and saying, God, I want to receive that love and affirmation from you, instead I look to other people. And if they respond in this way or if they follow in this way or if I have this opportunity, then I will feel happy and whole. And that's idolatry, plain and simple. That's what I'm worshiping and, and pursuing rather than turning that toward God who is the only one that can meet those desires. What does that idolatry look like for you? What are those needs that it's meeting? So as we think about idolatry, as we try to ask God, what, what is that idolatry in our lives? We need also to be confronted with the reality that God despises your idolatry. He hates it. He hates it. He gets angry, actually, about your idolatry. It's not the case where God just pats you on the head and says, oh, well, it's okay, friend. You're doing your best. You're basically a good person. It's going to be okay. That's not the way that our text presents God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I believe that the character that's revealed of God here is the same as the character of the God that we worship today. And we see it revealed in the New Testament as well. God hates idolatry. He despises it. Exodus 32, verse 7 to 10 reveals this. And it says, Exodus 32, 7 to 10, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and they have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And I will make that you into a great nation. It's clear here that God despises this idolatry. And he reacts actually with anger in this text. This portrayal might be jarring for us. We've experienced the fullness of the love of God through Jesus. And that is full and that is true. But that also doesn't mean that he doesn't get angry about sin. God is a jealous God. He is our creator, and so he rightfully deserves our allegiance, our affection, because that's what's best for us, to be in relationship with him, walking according to his will. And so he gets angry when our sin and our idolatry destroys us or leads us on a path to destruction. Your idolatry is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. It's not something just to kind of dismiss and be like, oh yeah, like maybe I'm kind of idolatrous or whatever. It's, it's a big deal. And so as you're confronted with that reality, I ask you actually to seriously consider what is the idolatry in my life? Because in that area, God is jealous 
for your allegiance. Maybe it's your family. Maybe your family's become your idol. Having the perfect family. I'm, I need my self-worth to be um, developed or to be met or to be acknowledged through my family doing really well and having the perfect image or my kids succeeding and flourishing. Maybe that's it. I, I don't know. But if you're giving your allegiance there, God is not impressed. He is angry. He is jealous because he desires your allegiance to be to him first and foremost. Our idolatry is a huge deal and it does make God angry because it's destroying us. But this is where we get to the good news. The good news is that Jesus covers us. And actually, the good news about this text is, and as, as we're going to work next week um, to the following chapters and looking at the glory of God and stuff, the good news is this section of text actually doesn't ultimately apply to us in terms of how God interacts with his people. It doesn't apply to us because we have Jesus, because we know what Jesus has accomplished at the cross. So it's really interesting. So I'm going to kind of develop that in the next moment or two. But what's interesting here is that Moses actually steps in and he pleads with God on behalf of the people for mercy. And Moses actually volunteers. He's like, God, you're angry at them. Please forgive them. And if you need, I'll actually step in on their behalf. If you want to destroy me, if you want to blot me out of the, out of the book of life, like do that so that they can be saved which is super honorable by Moses. Like, that's really kind. That's a great leader. He's giving his life for the sake of his people. And he's actually, he's like a Christ figure in this text. He kind of models or represents who Jesus would become by being a substitute for the people. Let's take a look at that, verses 30 to 35 of chapter 32. Chapter 32, verses 30 to 35. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and he said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if you have not forgiven their sin, then blot me out of the book that you have written. And the Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf that Aaron had made. I find these texts so challenging to preach on because I feel like, you know, unless we're here till like three in the afternoon, it's really hard to adequately explain everything that's going on here. How do we understand what God is saying here? I don't want to be here all three. You're getting kind of soggy. You don't want to be here till three. <laughs> so we're, I mean, I'm just going to do my best to, to summarize it and, and acknowledge that, you know, we walk away with a bit of mystery. Or like, why does God speak in, in these ways um, and whatnot? So anyway, just to acknowledge that there is mystery and uncertainty around this text. But we do see that God refuses Moses' offer to be a substitute and proceeds to punish the people with a plague. His judgment serves as an indication of saying, this is destroying you. It's not okay. You need an abrupt warning to address it. You need an abrupt warning to change this in your lives. A path apart from me is not a path of freedom. This judgment, this plague, is a foretaste of the direction toward death that you're taking. And I'm giving you this so that you will turn, that you will return to me. So God refuses Moses. But as I mentioned, this serves as a foreshadow of Jesus. This is actually, God knew he was going to send Jesus into the world to love us, to come and take our sin upon himself, to be our substitute. And this is already Jesus, God 
planting this idea in the minds of the Israelites. It's a foreshadow. It's a foretaste. It's a symbol to kind of get them thinking about this idea. And so then we see Jesus like, aha, that's what God was up to. He was already kind of initiating our thinking for that story back in Exodus. Jesus is our substitute. Because of our sin, we are deserving of death. Our sin takes us on that path. And Jesus, who is fully God, steps in and is like, I will take that for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus said, I will die on your behalf. And that's the thing about all of this, is the cross of Jesus is, is beautiful, not because we're like, well, God has to forgive us because he's just full of love, whatever, and we totally ignore anger and wrath and judgment. The cross of Jesus is beautiful because we actually acknowledge how horrible our sin and idolatry is. It is horrible. Terrible stuff. And it makes it that much more beautiful when Jesus is like, I will take that for you. I want to alleviate you of that. He says, I will step in. So I shared with you the story of Francine and through a series of events, actually neighbors who loved Jesus, Francine did come to faith. Remember the influence you can have as a neighbor. This is another story of just neighbors who are like, hey, come hang out with us. And oh yeah, we love Jesus too and we're going to care for you. And anyway, she comes to faith through her neighbors. She reflects on her turning from idolatry. She says, as I turned my will and my life over to Jesus, I found that I had been seeking that soul-changing, life-giving, ever-faithful love that we all long for. She could see it. In my adultery, that's what I was kind of seeking out. I met Jesus, and he fulfilled all of that within me. Jesus is our substitute, the one that sets us free. A couple more verses that point to that. 1 Peter 2, 24. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Our idolatry, the fact that the Israelites made this big golden statue and worshipped it instead of God, Jesus took the pain and the judgment for that upon himself. He bore it within his body on the cross so that we could die to our sins and live in righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed so that we can live by righteousness. You, you know, we know the ways in which we suck. We know the ways in which we have failed God. And because of what Jesus did, God looks at us and says, Gary, I just see a whole lot of righteousness. What a good dude. What a good dude. Val, I just see a whole lot of righteousness. What a, what a nice lady. Or, or Taylor, I just see goodness. I see what's perfect and beautiful in you and has nothing to do with us. It's all of what Jesus has taken as our substitute and placed upon us. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, he, bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. <laughs> I'm repeating the exact same verse because I think I copied and pasted it wrong. One second. First Timothy 2 5. All right, first Timothy 2 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity. That man is Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Jesus is the one who has freed us, released us, enabled the forgiveness of God so that we would not be judged because of our idolatry. So in conclusion. Your sin is a really big deal. Satan wants to tell you it's not a big deal. You're just trying your best. You're basically a good person. Your sin is a big deal. It's horrible. It's destructive. It is a big deal. But Jesus has you covered. 
you can be free. The story of Francine. Some of you may actually, I, I don't know if you know her story, some of you are familiar with the author Francine Rivers, who writes uh, Christian fiction. Anybody here ever read a Francine Rivers, Rivers book? No? All right. So some, I know there's a number of them in our, in our church library. Anyway, Francine Rivers. Uh, this is her story. When she took the idolatry and misplaced allegiance to God, she found forgiveness. She was healed. She was made full, including she really struggled as well with guilt from having had an abortion in her college years and just wasn't, wasn't sure if God could forgive her. And she said, when I met God and when I received his forgiveness, when he applied his righteousness to me, I've been set free and I walk with joy and hope. Despite that, she found forgiveness. God renewed her and used her to do some pretty cool things. Having received the love in Jesus and applying it deeply into who she was, she happily reports, these are her words, she is passionately and happily forever addicted to Jesus. So turning this forward to you, what will it look like for you to address idolatry in your life? When you acknowledge it, take it to Jesus. Receive that forgiveness. And then under the forgiveness of Jesus, knowing you're, you're whole, you're set free, look at your life and ask God, where is that idolatry present? I'm, I'm forgiven. When God looks at me, he sees a whole ton of righteousness, even though I'm pretty messed up. He sees righteousness. But now I need to kind of look at things and be like, all right, God, where's this idolatry popping up? Because it still has destructive effects in your life. So I actually invite you. Maybe you could ask your spouse. Maybe you could ask your, your friends, your kids, and be like, uh, in my life, what are the areas of idolatry that you think I would be prone to? I've, I've actually, so I'm preaching this, I've never asked anybody that question. <laughs> Ask them, be like, what does idolatry, what do you think are the ways in which I misplace my allegiance? What do you think idolatry looks like in my life? And hopefully you have someone who's a good, confident truth teller in your life who'd be like, well, maybe it's here. And then bring that to Jesus. Receive his forgiveness and start weeding that out because it is a big deal. And for those of you maybe who are listening who've never actually placed your faith in Jesus, I want you to know that that is something that you need to address. That is something that God wants so badly for you to come to him and receive his love and mercy. And it's just as simple as saying, God, I've, I've went different ways apart from you and now I commit my life to you. I invite you to come. I place my trust in your death, in your resurrection to forgive me. Um, come into my life. It's as simple as, as praying those words to God. But that, that's critical because we need to hear that message that God is angry at our sin because it's destroying us and it will destroy you. It will destroy you, your sin and your idolatry. But God has made, made a way. And so I leave you with this reminder that your sin is a big deal. But Jesus has you covered. And that's just super, super good news. Thanks be to God.